Welcome to the Consilience Podcast. My name is Shannon Beer. I am a health and confidence coach who chats to experts to help us improve our well-being so that we can get more out of life. You are listening to part two of my conversation with Mac and James, discussing the costs of living up to masculine ideals. If you missed the first part, you can check out the previous episode where we talked about men's body image, disordered eating, and the difficulties of admitting weakness. In this episode, we talk about improving the industry to mitigate risk and better help our clients who may be struggling and the need for interdisciplinary approaches. I hope you enjoy. We mentioned is about where do like health practitioners come in? I think the key point is at the very least, we can stop perpetuating harm and potentially enhance protective factors. So for example, in terms of the body image literature on females, we know that body appreciation can be a protective factor. So I, as a coach, if I'm informed about that, that may change the way that I coach. I will probably refrain from complimenting a client's weight loss, from complimenting their physique changes, from comparing before photos to after photos and using that as a metric of success. And I might change the way that I communicate with my clients to encourage them not to rigidly adhere to an exercise regime, but actually to have some fun to find ways of movement that are enjoyable to them and that celebrate what their bodies can do. That's not me, quote unquote, treating mental illness. That's me taking a research informed approach to promoting my client's well-being. And the yeah. same applies to eating behaviors as well. I would be better off if I can spot signs of disordered eating within my clients, knowing what to look out for and to be able to reinforce or enhance protective factors like a more flexible and adaptable approach to eating. So for example, if a client says like, I know that I was, you know, supposed to stick to this many macros for the day, but I was really hungry. So I overate. Is that a sign of non-adherence or is that a healthy and flexible approach to meeting your body's needs? As a research-informed practitioner, I can celebrate your learning to listen to your body's cues. That's an affirmation of a protective factor that I want to enhance. So it's not about treating mental illness, but actually effectively promoting a client's well-being. Mm. I think yeah. part of that is because we don't have the answers just yet. I think I think it's like, for instance, if we want to get um, like if we want to improve education among health professionals, I feel like it's so it's it's such an uphill battle to improve education among health professionals. Like I think making personal trainers better educated, making health coaches, for example, better educated is is a massive uphill battle. I won't talk, you know, I won't mention that. Um, but it's like if you try to push for higher, better education for these health professionals, it's really, really difficult. And I think it takes years and years and years. Like for example, to to make personal trainers someone, to make personal training certificates useful. Um, or to, yeah, like to make them actually good. Like I think that's gonna take a long time, a lot of investment and I think regulation in some sense or changing the regulation, not more regulation, but different regulation or some kind of universal body, for example. And it's 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 like 
for instance, if we look at sports nutrition, that is something that is so it's quite unique and it's, it's bringing, it's improving the basically nutrition. I think primarily, you know, it's, it's working for a lot of different professions, but I think for personal trainers, it gives them an out to give legal nutrition information. And I think they want to do that. It's just, they don't have a, a way to do it without going and getting a master's or a bachelor's. And it's like at current, there's no, there's no way to except like, as you mentioned, Shannon, it's like become a psychologist. Then you can work with people who have eating disorders. And it, it's, it, it's quite interesting because then there's, there's, there's no way to, and then it's like, if you look at the fact that it, it's a, it's a spectrum, it's not a, it's not binary. So then who leaves the people who don't have the diagnosis? It's like, there's all these people. Like I see people, I saw, let's say I saw, I saw nine people today. I think four of them had disordered eating. And it's like, who, who helps those people? Like, am I, as a non-psychologist, nutrition professional, am I unqualified to, to help one of those people, help some of those people, like, you know, explore the idea of, say, mindful eating with them? Or say, they, let's say they say something like, man, I, you know, they say an, a negative thought around how much they ate. And then I had the choice to reinforce that or have a more sort of making them question that and sort of using right. a, a questioning approach. I think this is part of the problem is that you can become qualified as a PT in a number of weeks and that the barrier to entry is very low. And yet we could view trainers, nutritionists, coaches as like first line of intervention or as you say, well, actually if disordered eating rates are rising and most people only end up in a psychologist clinic when they are clinically diagnosed and mm -hmm. we know that we're probably better off with getting in early intervention or even preventing these things from escalating why are we not dedicating more attention to those people that may be in a position to help if one of the mm -hmm. biggest barriers to seeking help is not knowing where to go and being ashamed are we not in a very valuable position in that people are coming to us and telling us what they're struggling with they may not be super upfront about it but we're in a position where this person has requested to work with us that is a huge barrier already overcome the issue is that we're not well equipped to actually deal with the problems that people are facing and this is where the education and the training needs to come in and i don't really know why it is now just normal practice to do a few weeks of a certification and be done and ready to work with people. Yeah, and think you can handle that risk. Yeah, when we're in a position to manage risk, there should be higher standards as to what our qualifications cover. And I think that includes knowing how to spot signs of disordered eating, even if you don't intend to work with eating disorders. I even had that mentality when I was doing my nutrition certification, the module on eating disorders, I was like, oh, okay, like whatever, going through it, but not really fully engaged because I was like, I'm not going to work with these people. And then it's like, fuck, when you actually start working with people in real life, you realize it's unavoidable. Yeah and that these behaviors are very complex and as you say it occurs on a spectrum nobody is immune it's not a thing that you have or do not have it's that there are different degrees of certain behaviors and attitudes that can potentially become harmful and they change over time 
to someone who may have a fairly healthy relationship with food and with themselves, whatever, can still go on to develop disordered eating behaviors and tendencies when their lifestyle changes, when their environment changes that predisposes them to being at higher risk. And then you couple that with dieting and excessive focus on their appearance. What wasn't a concern for them may become a concern for them if we're not aware. And knowing a little bit about the theory and the interventions and the protective factors, I don't think that's out of reach in terms of educating people. And I think there is a huge cost to not doing that. Yes, Mm. concerns about scope of practice are important. If you're concerned about that, that's probably a good thing. It means that you're going to be conscientious and it means you're going to be reluctant to overstep those boundaries. But the reality is people are coming to us, people are struggling and they're not getting the help they receive. So what do we do? Do we continue to brush it under the rug? Or do we actually get trained and qualified enough to deal with that? And, and dealing with it doesn't mean, it doesn't necessarily mean, at least for the for the sports nutritionist or the personal trainer, it doesn't mean treating it. No. It can just mean like spotting it and trying to be that project manager to potentially look at referral or, you know, mm. kind of floating that idea at least. Um, but then also doing your very best to reduce risk. Like you said, Shannon, you know, not complimenting clients on their bodies, trying to um, appraise certain nutrition behaviors on their positives rather than just going straight to the negatives. Like, oh, I ate too much. I feel negative about it. Well, you know, you had a great time with your friend and that's a really important thing, like trying to do those sort of things. So, yeah, I, I feel like there's a big angle there that could, mm. um, you know, it's got to be a bit of, uh, it's got some legs on it. So. Yes. It, like, for example, in my thesis, I found that dietitians, for, for example, have heaps of research. Personal trainers don't have much. So I think there's a there's a fundamental difference right now between healthcare practitioners and fitness practitioners. And it's like, as, as you mentioned, I think one of the biggest differences is personal trainers, at least from my understanding, do not have referral networks and they don't have screening tools. Those, to me, seem to be by far the biggest things. And men too. But yeah, someone who was a personal trainer and I was very much deep in that game and that space, there was none of that shit going on. Mm. And like, you know what? The thing is though, people might throw their arms up and say, personal trainers should be doing screening. Mm. It's nothing compared to what some personal trainers out there are doing with their clients. Like if we start talking about the nutrition side of things, the sizes of calorie deficits, the rigid food rules that make completely zero sense. So we're going to, one thing, Mm. industry, I guess it wouldn't be worried about, we wouldn't start off with the fact that personal trainers aren't screening their clients who would probably have a bigger fish to fry. How do you know what to screen for? How do you know how to screen if you haven't been educated on it? You know, and there are no sort of, I don't think we oh, have maybe not adequate. Yes, yeah. yeah. It's not definitely adequate. like you're, you're told you're meant to do it. You're given like these are things standard, out, but yeah, it's not. It, it, there's uh, from that sort of screening approach, you're not going to know if a client has an eating disorder. So yeah. Mm. And I think there has to be something that encompasses 
yes, eating behaviors, but also exercise behaviors, yeah. because we talk about relationship with food. We don't really talk about relationship with exercise. When mm. does your rigid, you know, adherence to your exercise routine, when does that become problematic? Because that's also a sign. We don't have the ability to differentiate our screening tools for different populations. How might it be different for a male versus a female? You know, a male is less likely to purge, perhaps, and to restrict food. They're more likely to put crazy shit in their shakes and push past uncomfortable feelings of fullness, you know? So, like, the way that we screen for these behaviours is going to be different. And, as well, people get sick of filling out really long forms. So we need effective pre-screening tools that are also short form and probably needs to cover someone's attitude towards themselves in terms of self-esteem or self-worth and the way that they relate to themselves in terms of criticism versus compassion, knowing that self-compassion is also a protective factor. And then we need to potentially assess for the positive side of things because a positive body image and a negative body image, they're separate constructs, they may overlap, but a client may already have some strengths then that may be valuable information. So this is like a pre-screening tool that needs to be created and then validated in different populations. I don't even think that's been done yet. Hmm. There's there's a researcher I'm aware of that, I'm going to ask her about it later, but it's like, they work with, I know you guys probably know Scott Griffiths. Um, he's doing some very interesting work in this space. Um, I know, I think he's doing it for males and females, but predominantly males. Um, but I totally agree. I think it needs, it, it's, yeah, I, I, I do agree. If we make it this long, big, long thing, no one wants to fill that out. And eventually, like, you just stop doing it. So and then, how do you like, what to do with the answers? Uh, okay, they've, they've filled out this pre-screening. Hmm. Um, is this a problem or not? Like, I don't know. You know, how do you interpret those answers? And then if you were to say, okay, this person, it looks like it may be problematic for us to continue, who's going to ensure that that occurs? And hmm. then if you were to refer that client, they might not want to go. They might, they'll just go to the next PT who will help. They'll them. go to the next macro coach team who's going to give them that 50% calorie deficit. Mm. And you know what? Another point to this, like this whole kerfuffle that we're talking about is the PTs or like that sort of level of coach, not, not to throw shade at PTs, but just, I'm just saying like the non sort of, you know, uni level type actual like dietitians, doctors, like that sort of thing. Most of them are so fucked up themselves with eating disorders and like, you know, they're all bloody competing in these shows and eating 1,200 calories and tracking for, they got a, you know, two-year MyFitnessPal streak. Like, not only are they not going to, like, be able to identify when it's an issue, but if they see it, they're probably going to be like, well, this is what you've got to do if you want to, you know, if this is what it takes to, to, you know, win a pro card like me. Um, and if you don't want to win a pro card and you don't want to compete, you're not interested in that, then like, there must be something wrong with you because like, mm. you know, rather than asking the client, well, what do you want to work on? It's like, well, what federation do you want to compete? <laughs> <laughs> Which muscle group would you like to focus on? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. How many weeks you got to your column? Straight up question. First, first question on the screen. Well, <laughs> that's yeah. Problem as well is that we aren't going to be able to effectively help our clients with these concerns when we're struggling to. And mm. we cannot ignore the pressures on individuals working in the fitness industry to quote unquote look the part. You know, so why would we think that we're immune to these as well? And from personal experience, the 
majority of clients of mine are coaches themselves, you know? And it's like that, it takes a lot for a coach who helps people with their nutrition and exercise to say, hey, I'm struggling with my own nutrition and exercise because there is that such like strong feeling of I'm a fraud. What if I get found out, you know, and that they're really holds people back from getting the help that they need as well. And then if we're not addressing these concerns, what are we passing on to our clients inadvertently? And this is the other thing about the, the whole body image is this the place for health professionals, blah, blah, blah. You as a coach, given that you are interacting with your clients on a weekly basis and you are helping them with their nutrition and their exercise, you are very likely to be impacting their body image, whether you know it or not because you are directly speaking to them about these things, you know, and yeah, maybe reinforcing unhelpful things if you're unaware of it. So given that, and given that interpersonal experiences can be a large factor that go into our body image attitudes or the way that we view ourselves. And this, again, this narrative, what do you do if a male says that he's had a really hard week? You know, how do you respond to that? you're not going to put him down for being weak or or whatever, you know, or some coaches might. There is that yeah, rhetoric yeah. of, yeah, it's, yeah, it's like, get well, over it. Get over don't even address it. You know, just skip that. Mm. And, just get on with the job. What What was your way in this week, you know? How many calories did you eat? Yeah. Did you adhere? Like, mm. what's your adherence rate? So, like, You'll feel better if you had a good, you, if you get jacked like me. Yeah, <laughs> real that's going around on Instagram where it's like, um i'm taking out my pain on my muscles or something like that you uh, know? Also like therapy yeah yeah it's, it's actually i don't know but i get so much pushback when i push it back against that what like that? i i made one reel saying the gym is not therapy and i got so much pushback to you yeah and it's like i don't know why people disagree with that like and it's like i've had conversations with people who i think are pretty well informed on this stuff and they still think no 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 it's a great way to deal with my feelings and it's therapeutic yeah. properties it's but it's not a replacement mm. for therapy it may mm. be adjunct it'll make you feel therapies. good it'll make you feel good it'll make you feel better sometimes you're having a shit day because getting your body mm. moved like, just anecdotally like it makes you feel good but mm. fuck it's not therapy <laughs> yeah it doesn't change your fundamental thinking patterns no it's it's good for like just general i feel good today i feel there's a lot of research coming out now in terms of the role of exercise in managing depression and that it can you know due to the brain derived nootropic factor and the the way that it impacts our well-being there is a lot of benefits to exercise there may also be the social aspect if you're like surfing and you may meet your surfer friends or whatever you know so it can definitely be very powerful and therapeutic, but as you say, it's not necessarily complete in and of itself. But isn't that telling? The fact that we all know that we feel a bit better in some way through exercise, which just highlights how the mind and the body cannot be separated mm. in that they are indissociable organisms, and yet we treat them as two totally separate things. Yeah, we, we still shit on like, holistic practitioners yeah, yeah i do yeah and it's like, I, do, I do as well 100 percent. like the reasons that you agree with though let's be honest yeah like it's it's interesting the waters get muddy in that it's not clear 
you know, and there is a lot of sort of bullshit out there. And there is that concern about people who don't know much about a topic then thinking that they know everything. And, you know, I cured my depression from this. So nice this is going to, yeah. He's in my bikini dance here out looking hot, hoping to get a validation. But I, I'm, I'm fixed now. Yeah. <laughs> that, that yeah. is a true concern, but mm. that doesn't have to prevent us from taking the steps that would actually help to address these problems, I think. It's mm. just it's a complex problem that is likely going to require an interdisciplinary approach, which is why there should be an open dialogue between practitioners, health coaches, whatever, and researchers who are arguably experts in their fields. But I feel like there is this look down upon on all these coaches and trainers and professionals who don't have PhDs, who aren't conducting the research, because clearly, what do they know? It's like, why are we treating them that way when they're the ones working with trenches? Yeah, in the trenches. In the trenches. But that is valid. And we can learn a lot from that experience. I think we can enhance research questions by collaborating. It's like, oh, you know, I'm having these experiences with my clients. Why are we coming up with these obstacles? Well, isn't this an interesting research question? Let's propose this to the researchers who may know a little bit more about it and have interventions. And the researchers that I've spoken to often feel very detached from the research that they're doing and the real world practical impacts because they don't see it happening. They don't hear what we hear when someone's saying about how shit they feel about themselves or how they're scared to go to the beach with their top off or whatever it is, you know, or how their partner doesn't find them attractive or at least they think that, you know, and they're scared to meet people. So there needs to be this collaboration rather than, oh, you don't have a PhD. Like, you can't know anything. It's like, that we need to know our roles, understand our roles, the limitations of those roles, and then work together, I think, to, to find these solutions. It's really cool when there's the working together collaboration theme. The thing I also like is when researchers are trying to get involved in the trenches themselves, like Zoya, for example. Mm. She mm. She's a researcher, but she is, like, so committed to taking on some clients, like, actually working with real-world clients because she feels that she has that finger in that pie then and actually understands like yeah because i think it's it makes sense like if you were a researcher how you would become so out of touch with what's actually going on quote unquote in the trenches which is what like the personal trainers and those sort of categories of coaches experience Hmm. yeah Yeah. if if we use bodybuilding as an as an analogy bodybuilding research got good once the researchers were bodybuilders themselves and it's like obviously it's ironic to use bodybuilding as an as an analogy here but it's like that's when we saw bodybuilding research get really really accurate to people's experience so it's like i think that totally makes sense and i 100 percent agree and to have that social media presence where they're able mm-hmm. to communicate their findings and have that personal aspect to it but that's not what we see with psychology research or research on topics of like body image or disordered eating or whatever there's no real presence there maybe because researchers feel they don't have time for it or it's not something that interests them but again like who is going to then do that the other thing is like when researchers go and do social media content often it's just like oh this is basically chinese to everyone else so it's not appealing like they'd rather go and watch fitspo 2000 dance around in a bikini my ten thousand calorie yeah talk about her <laughs> what i ate in a day 
you know, um, in a dining phase eight weeks out from cold. Like, you know, it's just like a peel thing in the algorithm. Mm. The algorithm is like pushing things that people will find like that'll draw them in. They're not going to be drawn in by some researcher who's been like, well, we did this findings and it suggests that there is a possible correlation. I think the shit science communicators. Yeah. I think maybe a, a positive that to end it on would be to just touch on what you guys think made like the biggest difference because you've spoken about the struggles that you face, but now you are openly talking about it. So what changed for you? What what made the biggest difference to the to improving and getting out of that rut? Yeah. It's a really good question. Do you have any ideas, James? Honestly, mm. I think it's it sounds cheesy, but it's like kind of talking about it for me. It's like and having that reflection it's reflecting and talking about it because it's like realizing my values it's like why do i and for me the the powerful thing was realizing there's joy in other things in life yeah it was having people that supported me regardless of how jacked i was and realizing that like that's what i would say for me but it's like and and investing in those relationships and those activities for me i'm gonna say that it like coming from a mindset shift and realizing the mindset shift, which encouraged me to go like a real methodical, I don't know if it's top down is the right way or I'm going the wrong way around, but really just be like starting with this, what life, like what, what makes me happy? What life do I want to live? And then trickling that down into what do I want my day-to-day look like? And like what gets me going in life and sort of things like this. And then thinking like, okay, well, what's not contributing to that? What's getting in the way of that? And what things can I bring in that feed back up that? I guess you could almost call it like a, a hierarchy, like a goal hierarchy almost. And just, just coming to this realisation that approaching it from this very methodical stepwise fashion that starts with what do you want to do? What's going to make you happy? And then going from there, I felt like that was a big change for me personally. I think for me, it was creating content. Like that was a weird coping mechanism for me where I talked about it to like smart people in the industry. Um, I think I think it was honestly some of my conversations with you, Shannon. That was quite, um, that was pretty useful because that was like two years ago where I was um, probably still in it. And you were able to kind of say like, like, why do you value being so muscular? And I was like, fuck, I don't know. Like, <laughs> that's the question like how is your life going to be different if you you know get an extra five kilos of muscle like like how what is this going to do for you like the struggle is that a lot of people on an intellectual level will be able to see that they'll say yes i know that there's more to life than looking a certain way and when i think about my deathbed i'm not going to be concerned about you know how i look and all the rest of it but making those changes can be very challenging and that sort of felt sense of oh I actually truly believe there's more to life than looking a certain way that does take intentional work to get to that point so speaking to people making these changes all of those I think are great stepping stones to getting that way but also knowing that it may not be easy it may be difficult to let go of some things that have been serving some kind of purpose for you for a long time and being able to sort of take that risk and experiment with new ways of living your life and of being a little bit more vulnerable and of learning to accept yourself, not sort of depending on the acceptance of others to get that self-worth. Like 
that can be a bit of a journey and it's like a constant thing. It's not like you achieve this confidence and happiness within yourself and then it lasts forever. It's like, oh, actually, you just kind of develop skills to be able to bring you back into that sort of zone when you may find yourself slipping back into old patterns of thinking or old ways of behaving. So I think that, yeah, having that expectation from the get-go, okay, well, this may not be an easy thing to do, but it's worth it to me for the reasons that we've discussed. You know, I have acknowledged that I've reached that point where my quality of life isn't quite where I want it to be. And I think that it probably has, in part, due to me internalizing this idea of masculinity, which is a large pressure that can be very powerful. So I'm not expecting this change to occur overnight. I'm not even going to put a timeline on it because that will probably just be unhelpful in some regards. I'm just going to strive towards improving my life, improving the way I relate to myself and improving the way that I take care of myself. And that will be an ongoing thing. And that's okay because I'm going to be better off for it. You know, it's worth that. I think the fact that it's um, like a continual work on, that's like, that for me is a key point. In my mind right now, I'm like, well, how could I be like better? with with this whole like you know considering where i've come from like how could i come further out of that and you know sometimes i do go to the gym when maybe it doesn't it won't serve me maybe i still sometimes go to the gym when i've surfed like four times in a day and i'm flogged but i still say no i should go to the gym because i'll feel better for it maybe that that's a thing but yeah i don't know no, I think that's um, positive that you feel like you've overcome a lot, you know, and that you are sure. happy Slept. with your lifestyle the way that it is, you know, and it's just that thing that you want to maintain. Yeah. It just shows that it's possible to overcome that. Yeah, I'm just trying to say, like, I don't really think there's more, like, ground to be gained. It's almost like the the road's finished, you know? It's kind of like, for me personally, though, that's just what I feel right now. There's still times when I go to the gym and I'm like, oh, fuck, I look small today. But I don't think it... it affects my behavior as much all right well thanks everyone for your time today it was a pretty cool conversation and uh yeah to the listeners thank you for listening thank you so much for listening to the consilience podcast if you found this episode helpful and you know someone who also would benefit then please do share this episode with them and if you're looking for more support check out my coaching mentoring and educational offerings by looking at my website which is linked in the show notes Until next time.